I want to stay true to the outline as close as I can, um, but I, I want to bring the outline to life. Um, I don't want to just chase rabbits, but just to give you a general idea, if you think of three goals this morning, is one, I want us to look at the text. And so when I put uh, the needs and observations, I think that'll be a tool for us to kind of um, walk through the text and kind of get it in our mind and have it framed up in us. Um, so that we know what the text says, so that when we say stuff that's outside of the text and we start to try to um, put meaning to the text, that we realize what does the text actually say and what are what are we bringing into the text. Um, and then the, the next thing, um, the wedding and the wine, will kind of set our, our, our context. What did a wedding look like? How does that help us under, understand the background of what a wedding in that day and that culture would have looked like and what the, the um, purposes were? That'll help us to fuller, more fully understand the text, but also wine and, and what its role in there was and, and what the bigger picture of, of biblical role of it is. Um, so what we'll do is we'll look at the text in, in that simple way set up the background and then what i'd like us to do hopefully is i would um, i pray always this but that the word actually penetrates our heart and then stirs up any any needs of repentance and also not just to stir up repentance um sort of is it a bad thing but also as a positive thing that it would stir up our desire to want to be holy as god is holy to be pure um and conformed to the image of christ um sometimes recognizing that we are off the mark actually is a motivation to get us back on the marker to look more like Christ. So that's the three, three ideas is one, look at the text and see what's in the text. Um, then add some, some, some meaning to the text, um, bringing a few things in. And then finally um, looking at our own hearts and, um, and asking where is our commitment with purification and holiness in that sense. So um, let me say, so looking at the text, uh, what I did, was, a fairly simple breakdown of this text is uh, it had 12 verses. We want to break it into three parts. So we can pretty clearly go the first four verses, the second four verses, five through eight, and then the last verses, um, um, nine to 12. And so those are kind of the three breakdowns I did. And what I also did, and just as we're getting into the text, when I say needs and observations, is that as we look at these, um, these five groups of people that are there, and, and, um, in both cases, um, in both cases, they had um, uh, three of the five had pretty significant needs. And so we'll kind of look at that and we'll we'll kind of relate a little bit of what are our needs in our life and what can we learn from um, their needs. And then also there three of the five make an observation that's key to our story. So we'll just kind of unpack this morning, this needs and observations and then we'll, like I said, we'll go and we'll make some meaning by looking at what was the context of the of the wedding there, um, and and that that um, in that sense, and the wine. All right, so let's just look at these um, first four verses here, and we'll pull a little quick line out of out of this, and um, start unpacking it. So in 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 John two one, we have on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Just real quick, uh, we'll, we'll probably touch on this a little bit more, but as I, as I talk about the five people that we have in this story is we've met Mary here, or let me just read the whole, whole text and we'll come back. So it's all before us. So let's go ahead and read in verse five, his mother said to the servants, because uh, this is our second player, the servants, um, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And in this third section, verse nine, it says, when the master of the feast, this is our third um, character here, 
tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Groom. This is our fourth person in verse 10 and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. In verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at the at Canaan in Galilee and manifest his glory to his disciples, manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him, which is our final fifth person, a character there. In verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And so as we look at these five people, the ones that had needs was, was Mary, the servant, and the bridegroom. And they all had essentially the same need as they had ran out of wine. And um, the, the person that this running out of wine would have impacted the most would have been the bridegroom and his family. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, that would have been the most devastating impact would have been on him. But the servants, which in, in, in much indication of looking at, at the context and culture of the wedding and the Eastern uh, mindset there, the um, servants would have most likely not so much been paid slaves of a kingdom or so, because they probably would have been pretty um, um, modest um, living people, not necessarily rich people. So the servants would have probably most likely been friends and family helping bring about the wedding. Um, and so the reason I point that out is even if they were hired, hired servants, they wouldn't want um, to have to bring this bad news of the wine running out to their master and to their master's family. Um, but I think it brings a little bit more context to it. If it was a group of people that were close and was trying to help this family bring about this cel wedding celebration, I think it would have been even tougher for them to bring this news. So this running out of wine would have had a weightiness to it. And then um, it, it leads to that Mary was probably pretty close to the family of, 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 the, um, of the groom and um, maybe even Jesus and some of the disciples that was with him knew, knew them and were friends with them. So these are the three people that would have been impacted and would have had a weightiness on their heart about the wine um, running out. So just to take it off of wine a bit, um, and as we look at this text, um, it's not, as we read this story, it's, it's about how does Jesus handle crisis? Um, it's not just about wine. It could be in any situation. It could be any need that you have. And that's why I said needs and observations. So we want to see what is the need? How does Jesus? And then the observation is how did Jesus handle it? So um, as we read this story, realize whatever your need is this morning, it might not be that you ran out of wine. It may be you ran out of money. Um, it may be you ran out of joy. Whatever it might be, keep that in mind as you see how Jesus deals with these people in this situation. So who are they and who is Jesus? And so starting back with the text, the first two verses just sets the scene. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, Jesus also invited to the wedding with the disciples. When the, and then here, verse 3, is the problem. When the, ran, the, the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, um, I think I forgot how the King James said it, but it, it seemed like it was a, a little bit even more abrupt. But this, this can, can come off as being rude. Um, I don't think that the idea, the purpose here was so much to um, be rude to Mary um, um, or to be rude to to the wedding party in the in the family of the wedding but i believe what happens here is one thing we have to roll back is this is the first miracle that jesus did and john calls it a sign and when he says sign he means an indication that this is the messiah that we have been waiting for and so in this sign um this the other gospels start Jesus' ministry a little bit different. It's the baptism and the preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. But here, he starts it with a sign. And so what we have to realize that what's happening in this water to wine is Jesus saying, my kingdom 
is beginning. It's the first sign. It's the first sign of deity and of the supernatural event that he's doing. And it's very fitting that he does it as a, as a wedding. And it's also very fitting that he that it involves wine, which is oft, often when we do the Lord's Supper, what is the wine or the grape juice represent the blood? And so there's some similar, um, there's some uniqueness to all that. But when he says, my hour has not yet come, as you walk through scripture, as we walk through the book of John, the hour that is coming is the death on the cross and resurrection. And so often you'll hear this phrase as we walk through John, um, they didn't take him or they didn't, um, they weren't able to kill him or whatever because his hour had not come. And so you'll see that phrase a lot. But if you remember back when he was 12 years old, and I thought for some reason, I wanted to have this verse keyed up, but I, I don't have it. So I can't give you the exact address. But when he was 12 years old, um, they had been looking for him for three days and they come into the temple and Mary is, and then Joseph, I'm sure also is very anxious. And what's crazy is three days, Jesus had been in the temple talking with the, the leaders and not worried about food, not, you know, not upset, not anxious. He was con completely content. It was his mom and his dad that was upset. And when they come and they find him, you know, Mary, just like, you know, our moms would do, gives him a, a stern um, scolding. And, and he, he just says, what's the big deal? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And so what happens there at 12 years old as it says in the next verse, I think it's Luke 2, 51 or 52, but he says he went and he submitted to them. And what's very key to that is that Jesus, you know, was being Jesus. He's like, I need to be about my father's business. But there's this time from 12 years old to the time that we're at now where he was just being a normal human being, um, doing life with his family and what they point out in this text is what it what what most believe is that joseph is dead at this point in time jesus is the eldest son and what would be happening here is just like any widowed mom would turn to her oldest son for support and um and you know there would have been many times mary would have said you know, when, 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 when the, when the events faced before her was beyond woman duty and was with man duty, she would have went to her older son and said, what, what can we do here? And, um, and so what most people come to the conclusion is that what is happening here is that Mary isn't trying to force Jesus hands like the Catholics will say at some time and make him do what she wants him to do and bossing him around, but she's just coming and saying, you know, this is something personal to me. I care about these, this family and they're out of line and this is going to be embarrassing and humiliating for them. And, 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 you know, what, it, what can we do? And Jesus is not so much being rude. He's telling Mary and he's stating for all that now is the time to start my ministry. Now is the time for me to be about my father's business. So as you walk through the rest of John, you will see him again and again, say, I am just doing what my father has directed and told me to do. If he, if he tells me to work this way, I work this way. And um, so I think that's really what's going on, that this is a pivotal moment. It's the first sign, it's the start of his ministry. And I think that's what, what, um, what he's trying to communicate here. Like, if you think about the odd statement where they tell him, Jesus, your, your family is out here wanting to see you. And he said, my family is those who do the will of God. That what Jesus is doing at this point is he is in, in starting his ministry, he's focusing all of his attentions to what God would have him do and to live out the lamb of God, the perfect, um, the perfect sinless lamb of God. All right, so um, in verse five, um, I think is the second um, really good good point here um, is his mother, humbled by this rebuke, as some would say, or put in her place, she she just basically just flows out of the well of her experience with Christ, and she <laughs> says to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you," and I would say for us this morning. 
have you ever had someone struggling in their faith and the best advice you could do is to 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 tell them do whatever jesus tells you to do you know that you know you ever seen someone running from god and and you just say you've got to stop chasing after the things of the world and you need to submit to the lord and do whatever he tells you um to do and so I thought that was just a, a, a good line there for us to, to kind of build upon that as we submit and we walk in this life with Christ, at some point, whatever our needs are, um, whether it's money or whatever we've run out of, whatever resources we don't have, we need to, to look to first look to Christ and just don't, don't, nit, don't, I guess, don't nitpick what he has to say, but whatever instructions he has, no matter how odd they are, just do it. And I think that's what Mary, her experience was. She, she said, you know, she probably knew Jesus would come up with something weird, um, but do it. And it's going to work because he's the source of all things. And so do whatever he tells you to do. He gives shit. So Mary hands off the baton of this story to these servants and says, look, you know, I kind of wish he'd have just gave me an answer, but he didn't, but he's, he's going to take care of it. Just you guys do whatever he tells you to do. So verse six, he says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. And this is our word in our third phase, purification. We'll come back to a holiness, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. I love that word because that's a joke between me and my grandparents. Fill it to the rim with brim is what we would say. And, and you know, <laughs> it makes me remember them. I'm um, in verse eight. It says, and he said to them, now draw out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Did I go too far yeah i think i got into nine um so so it just it, it is and and they filled them with brim and he said to them now draw some out and take it to the master of feast so we see the servants here um that they have this need they they want the wedding to continue to progress well and um and and so they fill up this the this these jars of water to the brim um one of the, the commentaries said that by filling to the brim, you could it, it, it uh, with water, you couldn't say that he just added water, you know, that, that it was completely water. There was no wine in it. Um, and but it, it, but they're drawing it out. The master of the feast. Um, let's go ahead and finish, you know, with nine. It says when the master of the feast tasted the water, because this 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 verse here. It's kind of interesting if you if you really look at it slowly. I think you see something that maybe you don't see just in a quick reading. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine." but you have kept the good wine until now. Um, one of the things, when we look at the observations part of it, we have three people that had observations, the servant, the, uh, the, the master of the feast, and the disciples. Um, one of the things that's interesting is the servants get are the only, only um, character in this story that gets to both be be interacted with the need and the observation of how Jesus um, meets that need, and so they get to be in that pivotal point that they're like they, they were the first to see that the wine was running out. They probably contacted Mary. Um, it doesn't show any indication that they went and told the bridegroom and his family about it because it was kind of at this state. Oh, this isn't good. I don't want to have to tell them that. So before they went and told the bridegroom and the family, it appears that they told Mary and said, what are we going to do? And Mary pointed them to Jesus. And so it seems like much of the story kind of hell um, um, was in the back room without the, the master of the, of the feast or the bridegroom and his family really knowing fully what's going on. And so, um, so here 
the servants are this pivotal person that they know the problem. They told Mary about the problem. Mary told Jesus about the problem. But but Mary says, do whatever he says. And then Jesus gets involved and they do this bizarre thing. You know, you got to think as a servant, they're thinking, what's going to happen here with us filling up this water? But this is the real place of faith that I see in the text. Is he said, Jesus says, read it again. Now draw out and takes it to the master of the feast so that they took so, so they took it when the master of the feast tasted the water now became wine and did not know where it came from so what i understand when i read this is probably in a quick reading i i just assume that he turned the water into wine and so they they put water in some jars and they go look and then it's all wine but I don't think that's exactly what is being said here. I think there was just water and they scooped it out and took it in some kind of way between going from the pots to bringing it to the, the master of the feast. Um, it, it became wine. And um, I'll support that a little bit better in a minute. But, but think about the difference there is if the servants saw all of those jars become wine, then they would have kind of let their guard off and say, woohoo, Jesus saved the day. We had no wine. Now we got 120 gallons or 180 gallons of wine. We're good. We can relax. But if every time they went back to that jar, it was water and they scooped it up and some kind of way from scooping the water up to taking it to the master of the feast, it became wine. Then through that whole wedding, they had to depend on the faithfulness of God to turn that to, to provide that need. That they, you know, we want God to just kind of give us the abundance. Like you give it to me the prize, and then I'll take care of it from here. But what this, if this is the way it happened, this is a different scenario. Um, a couple, I'll go ahead and tell you, since we're talking about it, is uh is is it is i want you to think of this it's not just a careful reading that that is is making me think this but it's a consistent thing throughout scripture and i'm going to say it like this i'm gonna give you five things there's five things that we have text in scripture that that it seems like god makes something out of nothing and so first of all it's water and bread and wine and it's also oil and fish and so if we go look at how god provided the um the the um the the catch of fish the large catch of fish that didn't break the nets he did that twice um then when we talk about oil we have to go to the the old testament with elijah and elisha and essentially what happened in those stories was you remember the woman the widow woman and her and her son, and she's going to make the last meal. And, and, and Elijah almost sounds rude there. He says, make me something to eat and then worry about you and your, and your son. And, and, and she's like, I'm just going to make a last meal and die. And he said, surely as the Lord lives, you will not run out. And so for two years, she just feeds. And so this story is making provisions for two years out of nothing. Um, the oil was still there. The dough was still there. She just had a little, she's looking there, it's just a little, but she just kept coming and it quit, it didn't run out. The same way um, in Elisha, there was a, a servant of his that passed away and the uh, he had some debts and some people were coming to collect the um, the um, the debt and she couldn't pay. So she um, they, they were going to take her two sons and make them their slaves. That was going to be the payment. And she's crying out to Elisha. And Elisha says, what do you have? And she says, all I have is this, this jar of oil. And he says, go out in, in the community, find all the jars you can, empty vessels and bring them back. And she just starts taking this jar and filling up this one jar and filling up all these other empty vessels. And there's this massive, um, um, uh, uh, the, she says, bring me some more jars. And they said, there are no more. And, and so anyway, he says, go sell that, pay off your debtor and, um, and then live off the rest. This is biblical um, life insurance, right? Um, the, you know, <laughs> what we're trying to do, um, you know, but, 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 but the other thing is, is bread and, and, and um, is water and bread. 
I mean, think of the feeding of the 5,000 and there was fish in that story too. It, you know, just five, five, five loaves of bread and two fish and then 5,000 people, meaning just the men and their families all ate and they picked up 12 baskets out of that. Where did that come from? You know, and, and so, so that's what I want you to see is that Jesus, it's not the first time that Jesus or God through Elijah and Elisha has made something out of nothing. I mean, even when we look at how this book starts in the beginning, there was God and nothing was created that wasn't created through him at creation. God made all that we see, all that exists out of nothing. You know, he spoke it into existence. I know I'm burning up our time here, but um, so let me try to finish up. So we, one of the things, so that we're talking about three observations. So the servants observed the miracle firsthand, up close and personal of Jesus providing from nothing. And then it got better than that because when they brought it to the master of, of the feast, it says the water now become wine and not know where it came from. Though the servants had drawn the water new, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have saved the good wine until now. So look at the role of the servant. The servant had the anxiety of, of the fact that we have a need. This is going to be embarrassing to the people. They mention it to Mary. They, they, they interact with Jesus do whatever he tells you, then they're, 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 they're drawing the wine. They might've been, I would think they probably were a little bit scared if they, if they scooped that wine up out of that jar and it was still water and they're walking to the master of the feeds with water. And, and they're like, you know, kind of sheepish here, here it is. And then it might've been water to the time it left their, it left their hand. And, um, and they're sheepishly here, here it is. Cause Mary had told them do whatever he tells you to do. And when he drank it somewhere, as he poured that cup up, he tasted wine. Like the master of the feast, what's interesting about this is he would have been a food critic. He would have, he would have been there to make sure that everything was on board, testing the quality of the food and of the wine. And so here they've sheepishly given this to this, this master of the feast. And all of a sudden he says, he calls the bridegroom. At this point, they possibly could have thought, oh, we are in it now. We didn't want to tell him this, but this is going to be bad. We were trying to prevent this bad situation. And it, it would have been so possibly shocking to them to hear that you have brought out the best, you know, to, you know, to now. And at some point they start seeing people are actually drinking wine. We know we just went to that room. We know we just pulled out water, but they're drinking you know, wine, um, the master of the feast and the bridegroom, everyone, the good first. And then this last statement, then the first of the signs Jesus did in Cali and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Um, you know, we talked about, I, I like talking about the servant's role of observation here. Um, it's, you know, what's cool about the master of the feast observations is he's clueless to what's going on behind the scenes. You know, sometimes secular people say things about what God's doing and they just say, all I can say is this is awesome. This is the best I've ever seen. And so what God is doing is showing that whether you're saved or you're not saved, his works are good. If you go back to creation, everything is good when he, he said to, you know, every day of creation. Um, but here these disciples are watching all this. They've been invited to this wedding and they're seeing the way Christ is working through these needs. And um, for them, they're going to continue to walk through him. So this is a fundamental building point um, for them and what they'll write in the gospels. Okay. I'm going to I'm gonna start with that. Any, any um, thoughts at this point, before we talk a little bit more about the wedding and the wine um, and we kind of add a little bit more to what is actually going on here in this story. Well, um, one of the main things I love about any of the miracles I've read about in the Bible is that um, every one of them, if you look hard enough, you find the, our Father, who Jesus has a particular purpose for this miracle. I, the, 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 whoever receives is a, is a reason for it, is a reason for uh, 
uh, those who see the miracle and those who don't. And uh, I, I find it fascinating, especially the ones I haven't been able to figure out yet. And like in this one, um, this was the first time his disciples got to see more than just a man, just a rabbi, just a teacher. So it was the beginning of that event. And this was the first time. And then he let the servants know because servants weren't important. If they'd have ran and said, that man turned it into wine, um, they wouldn't have believed him. It would have been a fiasco. And, you know, there seems to be this humble need, to, need for humble presentation of Jesus throughout. His time hadn't come where he would be announced as the Messiah. And that's what he meant to his mother. He said, it's not my time hasn't come yet. My time to openly perform miracles, my time to present myself as a, as a miracle worker has not come yet. But I can take care of this problem in a sort of uh, secret way. Yeah. Anybody else? I was just, I was just thinking, um, when you're talking about the when the when the water changed the wine, and either way it doesn't change the story. But in in the other examples, you know, at the end of the day, they was they collected the twelve baskets of uh, of bread and fish and brought it away. So it was the so when the wedding was over, there was a little bit of liquid left in the jars. Was it water again, or was it still wine? I don't know. So yeah. you know that doesn't really change change anything either way. And another thing I read was that the either Greek or Hebrew word that they translated into woman here uh, wasn't a condescending word. It was, you know, like mistress or lady. It was, it wasn't a, a demeaning word at all. So yeah. I kind of talked about in a couple of commentaries I looked at that, you know, Jesus was on the father's time about everything. And, and was this in a sense um, almost maybe kind of interrupting, the father's perfectly set schedule and so you know i, I really don't think he, he meant anything condescending to her or you know just kind of like you know mom you know like what like we would do and then you can't really add anything to the bible but there may have been kind of a look yeah. a look to her son afterwards like you know son and i think i think she i think she in faith believed that that he had the power to to fix it whatever way. I don't know if she knew how he was going to do it, but I believe she believed that, you know, he's the son, my son's the son of God. And, and, uh, you know, however way it's meant to be, the situation is meant to be fixed, he'll, he'll fix it. So, and she just knew, I think she just knew his, his love for her as his mother. Um, and she just left it, left it in his hands after she made a request, you know? Yeah. What'd you think? Shane, Mike, I got Kind of to, to go off of what Paul said, I always thought it was cool when she said, he told her my time is not now, but yet she still told the disciples, hey, y'all listen to him. <laughs> like she knew, she knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I get the picture that uh, she, Jesus let her know a lot of things that she, that he made her say, don't tell nobody, but I'm going to do this for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I think we'll never go wrong when we're encouraging other people to, uh, do it. What it do? What Jesus told you to do. You not gonna get in trouble with that advice. What you think, Mike? Oh, not too much. Um, I was just thinking about. I think Mr. Wayne talked about that, but just the the servants being a key part in that. It just reminded me at the birth announcement of Christ. You know, um, the angels appearing to the lowly shepherds. You know, so there's stuff going on to the, if you want to call it the least of these, right? I mean, those that you wouldn't expect. And it's, um, it just shows you that, you know, God has a heart for those people that are uh, maybe not in the spotlight all the time. You know, the, the lowly, the, the servants, those that are, um, we wouldn't, we wouldn't pick first on the kickball team, right? And yet God does. So um, it's just a pretty neat story. I, I don't know if I've ever really picked up on that before. Well, um, let me try to just hit, I had a, a lot more and I don't think we have time to really just nail through, but, but let's just talk about the wedding and the wine for a second. Um, I, th I think probably the most relevant thing um, this morning that we could say about the idea of this picture in terms of a wedding is, um, is so, I, I would say is this, is um, 
you had the east eastern culture and the western culture where the where the western and and of course over there in the middle east is the eastern and um and so there's some differences of how weddings are done how people are married and and what um what their context is that's worth considering in the process as we put this story because there are some things that sort of don't make some sense if we if we put our lens of what a wedding looks like um on this story um so a couple things um what the 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 general idea of a wedding over in the eastern area is um is that what would happen is basically it wouldn't be so much like in the west here people date and they get attracted and they're like oh she's attractive she likes i'm gonna be this and they're gonna be that and and whatever We, we have our western view of marriage and we have a tremendous divorce rate but but whatever the case um in the Middle East, most of the marriages are a little bit more arranged. And, and so that, that's probably a good place to start with that most of their marriages are arranged by the parents. So when you step into that, then what you think about is the fact that what is ultimately usually happening is the father of the bride is essentially at a certain age giving his daughter into marriage to a young man but he's doing it based on knowing who his parents are. And so what is happening is he's saying, okay, there's a point in my life. She's going to come age and I've had her in my house. I've taken care of her, but there's a point in my life. I'm going to give her over to another family and she's going to go and live with them. And most of her time is primarily going to be there taking and uh, caring and tending to their needs. Now, when you look at the groom's family or the bridegroom's family, I mean, picture, is this young man in our day, in the Western day, we would say, I just hope my daughter gets a guy that'll work hard and love her and protect for her. Um, But in the East, what would traditionally happen is that bridegroom would build onto the house of his father and they would go and live with the father. And that firstborn eventually when the dad gets old would take over ruling of the property of the state, but they are very family based. Their their mind of wedding is not about abandoning the family. Um, eloping is not really an option for them. Um, you know, so that's some of the differences that we have to see here. I think to to rightly kind of read the value of this text. And so, with what I just said there, let's put this on this text. If all those things are true, so what you have is you have. And we read that in Matthew 22, that traditionally what's also in the East is that the, 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 the groom's family will pay for all the event and the wedding, not the bride's family. So what would have most likely been happening here is this wedding would have, this seven day festival would have been hosted by not only this young man, but also his family, because what this is bringing into context is not just this young man that she fell smitten about and he just seems like he's got good potential and he because i guess what i hadn't said here is the way they would do their weddings is they would technically get married but they would still live with their parents for a year and the primary purpose of the of the of the male would be to prepare this house so not only would he be preparing the house but his parents would be helping him add on to the house if he had brothers and siblings they'd have been helping and so for a solid year not only is he getting excited about the wedding day so is the family we're going to take good care of this girl we're going to bring her in and 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 these kind of things so when you come to this running out of wine what you would be technically saying is that if they can't provide wine for a seven-day feast how can they provide for my daughter would it technically what it would have looked like in society so it would have been an outright embarrassment um in that in that sense and so um so what's interesting in this story when you take it through eastern eyes and not so much western perspective of marriage is that this and i and i and i told you how as you kind of walk through this text and you look at it through what i just said it's as if all the other families don't want to give this bad news to the groom's family. 
um, because this is going to be embarrassing. And one of the commentaries said that the bride's family, if this happened, could have essentially, to some degree, however this works out, sued them, and they could have been in, in great trouble because because and think about the the waiting in this you're, you're a father of a daughter and you've sought out a family that seems trustworthy and noble and that if if you if what you have to do is give up your 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 daughter to a young man in a family and they've had a year to prove that they are worthy and able to to provide for her and they can't even get through the seven day wedding fees i mean how angry would that make you as the bride's family and her support and um so anyway what's sort of cool about this if we if you follow out this reason and I, I know I'm trying to rush this up but sometimes God lets us run out of money run out of energy run out of time so that he can put his awesome hand on our thing now what better awesome hand touch could we start Jesus's ministry on than him putting his awesome hand touch on a wedding, on a marriage. So here, this scenario is set, you know, it's, I don't think it's just random. I think the family was probably good people. I, I think everything was probably going on the right track. I don't know why the, the, the wine ran out. It doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't work hard enough to prepare for the wine, but it ran out. And, and, and think about this, how many of us have really put our marriage and our family in the hands of God. And sometimes we won't do it until we have to do it. They say, you don't realize Jesus is all you need until he's all you got, you know? And so what's amazing about this first miracle is that what, what happened is a, is a is probably a very respectable family. They were probably not rich, um, but they're just trying to, to, to connect their child. There was probably parents that loved the daughter, parents that loved the, the son. They're wanting to do this right. They, 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 all of that. And they ran out of wine. And this is a mess. And we need help. And Jesus helped them. You know? and, and so we in the West don't give our marriages and our children up to the Lord like we should. And this story, I hope you'll take, I don't know if you've ever been, you, you ever went through a study of this, but I, I just pray this morning that you take that we've got to be um, more trusting and giving our marriage and our kids up to the Lord. Because even if we do all we can to prepare, which I imagine these people did, there are things that are going to happen in our life where we're, our cupboard is going to be empty. And we're going to need God to supernaturally provide for us out of nothing. And as, I, as, as you think about from here on out, when you think about fish, when you think about bread, when you think about water in, in John 4, he says, I'll give you a drink and you'll never thirst again. You know, um, when you think about all, when you, when you think about wine, think about the idea that God can provide and has provided and you have scripture references that he provided from nothing and that the problem you're currently facing is 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 nothing for god he can you know meet the need um but i i want to get to the to the to the point i know we're running out of time but but i just want to say something about wine real quick there was some interesting facts about wine before you do, let me interrupt real quick, sir. God okay. bless you, Dennis. You make sure your family, your daughters, your beautiful daughters, hear this message from you. <laughs> how godly important their wedding is. Okay, amen. Okay. But wine, I, I won't, I, I, let me see. I, I'm going to try to, I want to make sure I, I do this right. But I, I, when I thought about wine, I wanted to talk about maybe two things. One is the process of of wine fermenting and then also the idea of of, of new wine in the in the old wine skins and that idea you guys are familiar with that and, and i'm running out of time so i'm going to just kind of skim some of this but but the basic idea is that you don't put old wine uh, i mean you don't put new wine in old wine skins because it will burst i would say that there's a couple let me see what i wrote in the night i, I gave a couple suggestions about this 
do we become new wineskins when we're when we're born again? Um, is the new covenant a new wineskin? And how does wine refer to, there was another thought is how does wine refer to the judgment of God? One has to drink or able to drink. Are you able to drink this cup that I will drink? Um, and, and new wine, can it be the new spirit? And so when you study wine and, and different things, um, new wine can ferment real quick. But what I looked at is, so sometimes there's this idea of age that the older the wine, the better. Uh, but there, but I, but I looked at that, and it's actually only a small percentage of wines that, after a certain age, actually improve in their quality. Um, that a lot of wines that within a, a year or two, they're kind of like sort of like young wines with like a year or two, they've reached their peak of value, and then it's it's time to to drink them. Only a few really age in a long time. But one of the things that I, I found that was neat is that once you open a bottle of wine, if you don't drink it like three to five days, it kind of loses its, its value. And what it, it declines in is it declines to going back into vinegar. So if a wine has spoiled and went bad, it's not going to kill you. It's just going to taste bad. Um, so what we're talking about in this text is something that tastes really good, which is involving this this maturity process or ferment process so all wines have you know what what the winemaker is trying to do is get this wine to the best time to be be drank or whatever that it's 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 um it's come but anyway what i'm what i'm trying to say in this is there's a there's a lot of unique things because as we go through the rest of John, when we're talking about the Sabbath or when we're talking about circumcision or any of those things like that, we have this idea this uh, of going from a promise to a fulfillment. And, and sometimes we wonder, like when we go from law to grace, we, we wrestle through what is going on here? Do we abandon the law? Or are we not? Are we just now under grace? But what's happening a lot of times in this, this, as you dive into this, it, it really gives you a good foundation for understanding other things more fully is that this, this, um, this picture of the wineskins is that if we take old views of the Sabbath and old views of the circumcision and keep holding on to them as they were given to us as a promise, and we don't realize how Christ is fulfilling those things, then we're sticking with the old that could be aging past the point of, um, of, of its time of, and it's becoming vinegar, so to speak. And what Jesus is saying, it, he's basically being a wine connoisseur, and he's basically saying, all right, now we're moving from the old view of circumcision to the new view. Of circumcision from the old view of the Sabbath to of rest to the new view of a Sabbath rest. And so I think this first miracle, and I, I wish I would have had more time to kind of unpack this, it lays a fundamental foundation for us more fully understanding all the things that are going to be said that are, you know, all of it's all valuable, but it becomes more valuable. So if we think about wine, you can go get a cheap wine and it has some flavor, some value, but a fine wine has more. And, and what we're looking at is how much value can we take from these words that John has laid down for us in his, his book? Um, okay, that's, I know we completely run out of time. I want to get to the last thing that we were saying. Um, so I think the, the background of the wedding, the background of the wine, makes has value but i just want to finish up with this is purification um i, I give you a, a a few verses is ephesians um five five is a great text but i i guess since we're let's see since we're kind of out of time i'm going to read this just this one verse out of um hebrews 12 14 if i can get to it real quick um hebrews 12, 14. Now, if you remember when we went through um, our theme for this year has been evangelism and discipleship. If you remember when we went through um, Hebrew, the book Hebrews, um, one of the thoughts that caught out of me is this verse in 12, 14. 
And I'm going to take out, it says two things here, but I'm going to take out the first one and I'm just going to read it this way. It says, strive for the holy holiness without, or let's say strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that really captivated my heart when we were going through that. And God really began to penetrate. And I began to ask myself, are we seeking holiness in our in our churches of our day? And I just really began to, to, to just be drawn to that we need to intentionally um, seek out holiness. Um, it's in 1 Peter 1.16 where it says, um, be holy, because let me read that one because um, I, I think I'm quoting it wrong. Um, Let's see, first, first Peter 1.16. And by the way, that's the whole, um, the whole chapter of first Peter is worth reading. Um, it, it basically lays the gospel out. But he says this, he says, um, he says, as, as, as he who called you holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So I want to finish with the moments that we have here thinking about the water that he turned into wine was under the law of Moses, the old system. It was, they were, they were pots reserved, stone pots reserved for purification. And he, he used that to do this with wine. Um, a lot of the narratives will say that the water was not safe to drink. So they would mix it with wine and the fermented alcohol would kill bacteria and make it safe. And that, that this was not, when I talk about Eastern and Western culture, the Eastern culture doesn't, they don't look at sexual immorality or drunkenness or lust like we do. They're, they're a different, they have a different perspective. So just because alcohol is at a wedding in a Middle Eastern wedding doesn't mean that everybody is getting drunk like it would maybe mean at a at a at a at a western wedding it's just they they think about that different but but there but let's talk about purification i want to leave you with three things and I, I wanted to spend more time on this but we got like three minutes i just want to say the lust of the eyes the drunkenness and anger and anxiety as as one thing and i just ask you this this morning um i i, I want you to when I was over in Israel, one of the things that was shocking to me, and I, I'll just say it in, in the most simple terms, is in the East, they don't lust over women like we do. Um, it is It becomes a natural vibe, whether you're watching TV, whether it's the way people are dressed out in public, there is a lustful environment here in the West that is not there. Um, and that affects the purity that we can have in our marriage. Um, uh I want to speak about drug drunkenness. Um, you know, I didn't get to make that point clear, but one thing is that the Bible in no way from front to back promotes drunkenness. Um, it doesn't completely prohibit drinking, but it does not promote drunkenness and drunkenness leads to all kinds of things. Um, it can lead to you getting out driving drunk, and you killing someone, it could lead you to saying something to your wife or to someone else that's inappropriate. And it leads to something. It leads to affairs. It, 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 in the West, we use drunkenness to dull our senses in such a way that it opens the gates of sin. Um, and, and, and so whatever we see happening at this wedding is not permission to, to be sinners. You know, th that's not the point of the wine in this story. But I thought about when we're talking about drunkenness, there's a tremendous amount of people in our society that the way they deal with anxiety is medications, that some anti-anxiety medicines or, or whatever. So we have different things that we do to cope with life. And then, and, 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 and then anger and anxiety. You know, the, when we're trying to control our life, when we're trying to be independent and people are not working with our plan, it has a tendency for anger to rise up and it has a tendency for anxiety to rise up. But I want to bring all that to this. I, I, it, this was the takeaway for me is what are you running to? Are you and, and, and I think about Mike when he, he said this, he says, when hard times come, I've heard him say this before, when hard times come, people either run to God or run from him. 
And I would just leave this with you today. Who are you running to? And I want you to, I wish we would have dug in a little bit better, but, but I, I want you to ask yourself when we, when it comes to porn, I'll just say it like this. When it comes to porn, there's usually one or two types of people that's on the other side of that image in their heart. It's either someone that's been sold in a slave traffic and is being forced to do what they're doing and they've been pulled away from their family. And it's the opposite of this wedding. This whole wedding is giving up this daughter to a family that's going to take care of, of them. What most porn models or whatever is, is someone that has been robbed from a family and being forced to do something that they don't want to do. And, and then the other is, it's just women that are completely messed up, had a bad dad. And they just, they, they're just finding meaning of life in all the wrong ways. But whatever you're looking at on the other side of that screen of, of, of a woman that is attractive and doing what you may think you would like one to do for you, whatever the case, it's not real. It is a lie from the pit of hell, and it's not real. That's not really what a woman wants. I have four daughters, and, and I, I've come to learn my wife. That's not what she wants. That's not what she needs. It might be what your flesh wants, and it might be what your flesh needs, but it's not what she wants, and it's not real, and it's not what God wants for you. And so I want you to think in this. Years ago, I got freed from, from an addiction to, to, to porn or to lust of the eyes or sexual immorality. But I want you to think about this every time those thoughts come or all those temptations come. Is that somebody's daughter, that's somebody's sister, and that's somebody's wife, some future wife or whatever, but it's God's child. And when you look in that way towards that person, what you're doing is you're, you're disrespecting God. You're disrespecting her father. You're disrespecting her, her son, her future husband. And you need to put weightiness in that because we are careless in our flesh and our spirit needs to cause us to be more mature. When you're talking about drunkenness, I'm going to just tell you honestly, personally for myself, Right before my father-in-law died in November of 2022 uh, or 2020, um, three months before that, we found out my brother had um, uh, my brother-in-law had a, a, a mass in his head and um, and it was cancerous and he had to go in and, and get it cut out and he had to do it alone because of COVID and they wouldn't let his wife be with him and and but but three months before that, my wife came and told me and she said, "I don't feel safe with you," and um. And, and I basically had been working so hard. We were one income family. We'd done everything we could to provide for my wife and my four daughters. And, um, and, and, and just like this young man, this bridegroom and his wedding, this family, we just ran out of wine. We just ran out of resources. And why I had all the intentions of the world to love my wife and love my kids in the way that they should be loved. We just ran out of wine. And my wife came to me and she said, I don't feel safe with you. I don't feel like I can talk to you. And I'm going to just tell you, that got me so, I mean, you wouldn't have done no good to get angry, but it got me so anxious. I couldn't hardly function. I couldn't hardly go to work. I, I just, I couldn't focus. And, um, and I, I went and I, I, I had drunk in a long, in 20 something years, but I started drinking just to calm my nerves so I could, I could get through the day. And I began to study hours and hours of different things of, how do I win her trust to tell you the story of that within three months before we found out about my brother-in-law having the tumor, she came back to me and she said, I couldn't have went through this without you becoming what you have in three months to think about water to wine. God did something. And we didn't know that three months later, we would lose my father-in-law too. But I can tell you this, we're now closer than we've ever been before over some, some, some tough stuff tough stuff but my point to you to leave with you is this hope that whatever you're going through maybe you want to turn to lust of the eyes because the intimacy of your relationship is not like it, it, it should be or that you desire maybe your life is so heavy and busy that you want to turn to drunk to some sort of drunkenness or or medical drugs or whatever out you know whatever to cope maybe it's just busyness but whatever you're doing that is not godly i guess i don't know if that's the best way to say it but whatever you're doing that's not running to god what did mary say do whatever he tells you to do 
you know, who, what did Mary do when she saw a problem? She ran to Jesus. And when Jesus said, I'm not going to do it for you, but she said, well, you do it with the servants, do whatever he tells. And the disciples at the end believed. Whatever your problem is, whatever your struggle is, whatever your situation where you say, I don't have no hope in this situation. I encourage you to lay that down to Christ, to come to him. Um, I know we ran out of time. I'm going to give you, you know, a few minutes to finish up and round it up. Um, or round up the story of what you guys think. I just Thanks appreciate it. Yeah. Incredible. I appreciate the testimony. I think it's probably the best part. I know it, uh, yeah, it's tough to do sometimes. Just, you know, I could tell it was heartfelt and real. So that was a uh, very powerful at last couple of minutes there. So, um, yeah, I sent a little text out. I think I sent it to URA, Dennis, but, um, it's something I got out of an Andrew Murray book I'm reading. It's just one page, but I encourage y'all at least read the first paragraph and apply it to the servants, which is basically us as believers in this story, um, that for whatever reason, God uh, chose to use us to perform his miracle. It'll be part of his miracles, be part of the salvation process. And, and that's uh, something we should really get down on our knees and pray about and think about that um how amazing it is because he doesn't really need us to do these things he didn't need the servants to go fill those up and he could have just turned it filled them up himself you know by speaking it and it became wine but he condescended and chose by whatever grace to use those servants just like he uses us to to be his hands and feet and so just kind of prayerfully read that at least that first paragraph or, or not the whole page and think about that but yeah, I appreciate it, Dennis. Good, uh, good study, and, and great testimony there at the end. What you think, James? Agree. Appreciate you sharing, Dennis. I, I mean, look, you know, and a little. I always go back to the verse: a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. So allowing just a little bit of sin opens the door and, and just keeps kind of puts you down a a spiral. So if you can, you know, I know the Bible talks about. Uh, flee from sin or uh, flee from uh, sin and the, and the devil. Man, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, just basically run when you see sin run. Yeah. And that's from James. Huh? What you think, Mr. Mike? Uh, Dennis, I just echo what these guys have said. I appreciate you sharing your testimony and just being real this morning. Um, you know, part of changing part of the line is, is part of our story. You know, that um, God does something in us that only he can do, right? I mean, um, the world looks at it and, you know, you've said this before, Dennis, says, you know, world calls it lucky or whatever, but we know that um, somewhere in a back room that God's doing something um, in us that um, only he can do, so... Uh, Thanks for sharing your story. I, it, it's encouragement to, to me and these other guys for sure. Let's think. Last, last thought, Mr. Wayne. Amen. Uh, I thank God for being a part of this group. Good. Well, I'm going to close this in prayer. And like I said, what my intentions was this morning um, is, is, is one of the things that I don't want us to leave. And I ask you as you go to your church service this morning, you think, um, we, we have to be purified. We have to be holy. And I just, I believe that, that as God works holiness in us and draws us into him and, 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 and gives us a heart to desire what he desires, um, there, there's great hope for our future, regardless of what the signs of the times say, um, whether we leave this earth in a, in a corrupt world or a world that's kind of getting it together, the most important part is what is our focus in on Jesus? And, um, you know, we have to remember that it's these challenging times that really do the most work in our relationship with Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this time together. Um, I sowed the seeds the best I, I was able to do with my um, my um, my skill set, Lord, and, 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 and even specifically my skill set of this morning. And so, Lord, I ask you that we're, I erred, 
I ask you, Lord, that in your spirit that you correct. And so, Lord, the seed that we sowed this morning, I thank you for these guys coming to um, to receive the seed. But the seed that we sowed this morning, Lord, I ask you that you you water it and grow it, that you guide it in its appropriate way. And Lord, I just ask you, Lord, that you would cause us to be a people that would be holy as you are holy. That those things that we talked about, whether it be drunkenness or lust or um, or anxiety or anger, Lord, I just or anything else that fits along that line, any vice that's holding us back from being in right relationship with you, Lord, I ask you, Lord, that you would you would you'd rise up a spirit in us that would run to you and not from you. Um, there are so many options that we have in this world to try to be independent and to do things our way. But Lord, at the end of the day, nothing this world has to offer, no resource of this world um, is of any significant value if you're not in it. And so, Lord, I ask you, Lord, that we realize that little is much um, when you're in it, that you can you can provide all our needs, our greatest needs, our greatest joys um, with, with, with what you have. We don't need what this world has. And so, Lord, let us be a people that are set apart. And I know that only you can move in the hearts of people and change hearts. And so, Lord, I ask you to start with us. We give our hearts up to you this morning. We give our minds up to you this morning. And we ask you to change them. And, Lord, we know that if you're willing to do that with us, you're willing to do it with our culture, our community. So, Lord, not only do we lift us up, we lift up our families. We lift up the people at our work. We lift up the people at our church. We lift up the people in our community, Lord. We ask you to move in the hearts of men and women and draw them to yourself. Give them a passion to be more like you. Give them a passion to want to be pleasing to you, Lord. And Lord, I just ask you to bind up the distractions of this world on every TV screen, on every computer screen, on every commercial. We're just constantly bombarded with these temptations of the devil to, to cause us to defile ourselves. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would, you would guard us, that you would protect us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. All right, guys, well, I hope you all have a good morning. And if you need anything, give me a shout. All right, guys. Have a good week. Have a good See week. You guys.